This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in cultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am thrilled today to welcome Mr. John Zierzen to the show. John Zierzen is the author of countless books, including Elements of Refusal, Twilight of the Machines, and Future Primitive. Today, we are discussing his new book, When We Are, hu- when we are Human, Notes from the Age of Pandemics, which was published in 2021 with Feral House. Mr. Zuzan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be with you. Could you talk about the title, especially your choice of, of pandemics in the plural? Well, that's kind of an indirect uh, reference. There's actually nothing in the book about the uh, pandemic uh, per se. But the general, what's looming over the book and loom- looming over everything, I'd say, is that we're getting to this the age of pathologies, the age of things uh, failing in every sphere. And that's just one of them, the kind of multiplying epidemics and pandemics. And now it's, that's a more of a global thing. And here we are in it. uh, And not just when I wrote it, but, or when it was published, but still is, of course, you know, there's these variants of the coronavirus and it's a, it's a global thing. And, I thought that would be a, you know, some sort of a pertinent reference, even though I don't discuss the pandemics in the book. And and when we are human? Well, that was, I changed, I had an essay, uh, when we were human, more in terms of uh, the Paleolithic, the uh, egalitarian hunter-gatherer band society, period of of humans of human species uh 99% of our time on this planet was that and then i thought well these essays are not so much anthropology but i can kind of steal the title and just tweak it a little you know so that's kind of what i had in mind so a lot of people refer to you as a philosopher But in the book, you point out that you really don't think of yourself as a philosopher. And in fact, you use the term anti-philosophy, but in a non-Baduian sense. Could you talk a little bit about why you don't consider yourself a philosopher? Non-Baduian sense, for sure. Well, I think the most basic thing is just that I find uh, philosophy too abstract. It's thinking at its most general, and that doesn't get you very far, in my view. That's a very sort of vague answer to that, but... You know, in a somewhat uh, Wittgensteinian sense, one of the things I get from him is 
uh, our task as philosophers, as he put it, is to do away with these problems and questions of philosophy that really don't add up to anything. They're just sort of false uh, fooling around. And, uh, you know, it strikes me as quite a lot of truth to that. And, and you know, by the way, nobody reads philosophy now, really. I mean, it's, it's not the only field, but academics do. They have to read each other's papers, but nobody else bothers. It's just, uh, it's too academic and, you know, uh, not connecting to anything uh, much in in our lives, you know, in terms of the crisis we we're in. I mean, it's just so those are kind of a scattering <laughs> of answers, I guess, to that question. But I just don't feel comfortable with finding the answer in philosophy, really. Yeah, in fact, you have a uh, you have an essay in the book called "My Problem with Adorno." Could you talk about what your problem with Adorno is? Oh, gosh. Well, that's kind of another slightly provocative title. But, I mean, I've got so much from Adorno, especially in the 80s. I was just thinking about this a while ago. A period of some isolation and even despair. You know, the the social movements were absent. The movement of the 60s was long dead and gone. and And I just was inspired so much by his method, I guess you'd call it that, you know, how much one person can contribute something in his style, how much brilliance really in in a sentence, uh, for example, was uh, really helped keep me going. Uh, But, you know, but there are differences as much as I got from Adorno and the Frankfurt School, you know, it's not the same, uh, we don't agree on everything. Uh, we could get into that, but I mean, for example, in terms of what I got, I mean, I have one of my key, one of my favorite things is from uh, Dialectic of Enlightenment, when Odysseus is sailing past the sirens. I think he and Horkheimer just just grabbed that so well. You know, he has his crew, he has their ears stuffed up with wax, he has himself lashed to the mast so they will not succumb to temptation. And, of course, they're sailing to civilization. They're sailing to repression, and they don't want, they're rejecting literally uh, eros and freedom. They, they can't uh, fall prey to that, you know. So it's just brilliantly captured. And, and there it is, you know, if you didn't think about it reading the Odyssey, they just bring that to life. It's just the perfect example to me their critique of civilization, well, it's it's the same as Freud's. I mean, it's the same lesson. It's it's repression at base. But they didn't go so far as to say, well, if that's what it is, then get rid of it. They they don't go that far. And of course neither does Freud, but but uh it you kind of get to that position in various ways and now in these very stark times, it's on offer. Because civilization, the one there's only one left. There's one global integrated, totalizing civilization, and it's and it's failing. Just you know, starkly, grandly, obviously. You don't have people. That sounded outlandish, I suppose, at different times. But I don't think people see it as an outlandish conclusion at all. There it is. It's not a secret. 
So you want to go down with the ship along with the rest of life, along with the rest of the physical environment, et cetera, et cetera, or not, you know? And this also gets us to uh, maybe your differences with Donna Haraway a little bit. Oh, gosh. Yeah, we, we never really had much communication, but she strikes me as a perfect uh, example of what's wrong with postmodernism. I interviewed her once. She was a keynote speaker at the University of Oregon here. Oh, gosh, it was early 2000s. And uh, anyway, the details of that aren't very interesting, really. But uh, I was just doing this interview. I, I wasn't, I don't know why I was the one who was doing it, but I wasn't uh, coming in to jump on her to gotcha, you know, or to any axe to grind. And it was a pretty matter of fact discussion. I was throwing questions, you know, and what she's doing and so forth. And right in the middle of it, she just kind of, uh, and I don't know if I should go ahead and say this, but I have before, so I might as well, uh, just kind of stopped the whole thing and said, uh, you know, apropos of nothing I was saying, but she said, you're like this angry prophet railing against modernity and everything else, mass society, etc. And, you know, you won't get anywhere that way. You got to play the game. And I was just sort of shocked. Why would she come on with that, which I didn't bring up? And why would she reveal this, to me, this absolute cop-out? Really? That's... That's where you're at, and and all of this rhetoric of hers. And in fact, going back to the cyborg, her famous uh, uh, contribution back in the '80s. I mean, how wonderful! And here we are on the verge of the metaverse. You know, yes, we are merging with the machine. And she was saying, well, if you have glasses or whatever, you're already a cyborg. You know, in other words, don't fight it. You know, here it is. Rejoice at becoming a piece of machinery, in effect. And uh, that's kind of where she's been, you know. And she also wrote about, she's a very big dog lover, so am I. But uh, she wrote this thing about domestication, which is, of course, also uh, in part, not, not just aiming at primitivists, but the question of domestication. Well, dogs are fine, so therefore domestication is not a problem. Really? What what sort of logic is that? I mean, that, that doesn't even hold up anthropologically or any other sense. Dogs, by the way, the, the consensus is that it's a co-domestication. Dogs came to humans and humans came to dogs, and it, it wasn't like breaking a horse, apparently. You know, so, so anyway, but that was what was troubling to her, a, a deeper critique. And to me, we don't need to get into the, the whole postmodern things, but and I think we're coming out of that phase. I sure hope so. There are signs of that. That that weak thought, as Vatimo put it, celebrating weak thought. I mean, that to me, that's just appalling. Just when we need it the most, we need strong thought. Not this, uh, oh, we can't really understand anything. You can't grasp the whole. The totality is totalitarian. All of this crap that just is nothing but a surrender, in my opinion. And, you know, I've I've had the chance to... Uh, do some speaking in quite a few countries, as a matter of fact. And I really, maybe this is a little nutty, but at times, in fact, more than once, I've tried to 
uh, get the discussion of postmodernism on the table because at times I would see that there was somebody who was kind of a darling at some campus or another, for example, and they'd have their circle of students, a well-known postmodern person. And it never happened. It never happened. I remember one time uh, there was a woman at a university and she she was surrounded by her students and she was quite the postmodern uh, person. And I just lit into it. I just really tried to get her to do battle, in effect. She, and she just smiled. And the talk, it was in the summer one, one year, and we all just sort of trooped out onto the lawn. Uh, it was very, very nice. And she smiled and waved. In other words, there's no, there's nothing there. You, you can't be challenged. It, it doesn't count. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And to me, that's even worse than, you know, duking it out with somebody over important questions. There's, there's no, there's nobody home, you know, it's just a game. And she smiled like, I mean, I wasn't, I don't think I was personally abusive or insulting, but I was trying to get at the, what I think are the profound uh, weaknesses of the whole postmodern thing. And I got that over and over. Finally, I gave up. You can't get them to come, you know, and put on the gloves, so to speak. They won't do it. There's just uh, kind of maddening. And I'm glad maybe we're getting to the end of that. I don't know. If, do, you, do you see that as we're kind of passing away from that uh, thing? It's still around culturally, but I mean, as a, as a body of thought, I, I think it's kind of giving way, maybe. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> One hopes. <laughs> very, very non-answer. <laughs> well, it's not clear, really. You also, in the book, you write about uh, not only Adorno, not only Haraway, you also write about David Graeber a bit. Maybe you could speak to that. Well, I'd be glad to. You know, his this new book uh, by Graeber and Wengro, uh how it all began, or is that the name of it? Um, At the dawn of everything, I the think. The dawn of everything, right, right. Well, let me say, I think that's just an absurd book, just just ridiculous. Uh, and the very few uh, people that have reviewed it from the point of view of anthropology are, are not impressed. A lot of other people gave it a pass in a kind of a general leftist way. Uh but, you know, one of the key things, and I won't go on and on about it, but they really argue or, or state that basically all of the literature of anthropology is wrong. It wasn't that things were off to a bad start. Actually, domestication, urbanization, all that uh, were fine at the beginning. It was a playful deal. You could go in and out of domestication. That's just rubbish. That's just nonsense. I mean, it's funny because David Graeber, he never would speak with me. I sent him one or possibly two very friendly emails way back around, oh, early 2000s. He didn't respond. And then he went around saying, Zerzan is stalking me. Really? And when I was in London, he wouldn't meet with me. I mean, I, by then I'd pretty much given up on that. But he went around saying, referring to us in general as crazies, the primitivist crazies. And this, this book, in, it's not, I'm not saying it's consumed with the you know, presence of primitivist thinking, but one of the things that it is, is a thinly veiled attack on the primitivist critique of civilization. So in a funny way, what you have is the left 
coming to the rescue of civilization. So who's the crazy? I mean, we're we're dependent on the on the main lines of anthropology for so much of our you know our scholarship or inspiration. He's the one that's trying to throw it out the window. So who's the fringe crazy people? I mean, you know, and he doesn't achieve that. They don't achieve that. It'd be one thing to make that case that there's some fundamental wrong thinking. Like some people have said, a lot of this stuff uh, is kind of 60-ish. You know, it's, it's kind of out of date. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's not so hot in terms of uh, seeing that there was a very perhaps fatal move to domestication, uh, which I think there was. But you can sort of, there was a somewhat of a conservative backlash against a lot of anthropology, but, well, okay, so argue the case, bring up the evidence. And they really don't. They, they, one of the problems is they're, they're talking about hunter-gatherers. Well, they weren't so cool either, they argue. And, in fact, the hunter-gatherers they talk about uh, mostly were not actually hunter-gatherers. That's, that's an old game. You know, you sort of fudge the distinction there's already domestication. So how are they hunter-gatherers? You know, by definition. Anyway, um, I just, uh, in the current issue of World Literature Today, I published a a review of the book, and I tried to be temperate. I tried not to, I didn't get into any personal stuff, uh, which I'm indulging myself in here, but uh, the guy was very, very hostile to... uh, the critique of domestication and civilization. It's just obvious. He's really, Leila Abdel Rahim, for example, who writes wonderful stuff. He went after her and they had a great big war and she was just kind of shocked. Why this hostility? What's, why are you so full of hate about this? What's Jews? So the guy's a fraud. He was not here to defend himself, but all the way down the line, a lifelong anarchist, he was never an anarchist. He was always a progressive leftist. For years, he was an editor of In These Times, a weak progressive zine. I mean, where is the anarchy? About as much of an anarchist as Chomsky, even less, perhaps, which isn't, which is not saying much. That's kind of the reason why I thought it would be interesting to have you on here. I mean, you're you're really. I know you don't like the term philosopher, but maybe we can say you're you're really a thinker who uses a lot of anthropology to make uh, political arguments. Right. And so your your uh, your interactions with with certain anthropolo- anthropological trends or your interactions with certain philosophical trends, I think play out very deeply in this book. And I think that's also why uh, getting on to kind of the next question, you have this constant critique in the book of what you call symbolic thought. And I was wondering if you could explain for listeners what you mean when you talk about symbolic thought. Well, that's something that's uh, the most speculative uh, wing of this. And it's not uh, something that, I feel uh, dogmatic about it, especially in some realms, for example, language. I think that's probably the most speculative uh, thing I've tried to get into. Time, number, 
art, I think that's a little bit more easily seen. And I think what I started to notice was that the emergence of symbolic culture um, is paralleled by the emergence of uh, divisions in society. So that could be a coincidence or not. It could be more of a consolation, uh, kind of a consolation prize. You're giving away the wholeness, the egalitarian nature of society, which was banned society. And in return, you get symbolic culture. And, uh, you know, a book by David Abrams, The Spell of the Centuries, I think is very good in this area. Um, you know, it's, it's somewhat nebulous. And I think these various parts of it uh, come together in a way. And I think one part of it, if I'm not straying too far from the question, is really the spiritual component. I remember a talk, uh, a woman in the question and answer said, I think this whole green anarchy thing is at base a spiritual movement. And I was just amazed by that. I was That was another thing I was unprepared for. And I really thought, wow, what do you mean by that? I, I just, right away, it sort of struck home. But she had to leave. She had to get on a bus to go home, and I didn't get to talk to her very much. But I think that's part of it as well. I think politically, to me anyway, primitivism is a spiritual thing because it's talking about wholeness and directness and really communion with the earth and with each other. And you don't have that with with the symbolic. You know, Freud pointed it out. He, he said, uh, apropos of language, he didn't develop this, but he pointed out that in his opinion, we were probably uh, psychic. We didn't use language yet. We were just communicating directly. I mean, that sounds like very spacey stuff, Freud. And he wasn't he wasn't terribly impressed by that, it didn't seem, for some reason, as if, well, we moved on, we evolved, you know, we now we have the glories of the symbolic. And, well, maybe that was a far superior plane, if you will, you know what I mean? So, anyways, all these things, and in the, in the 80s, that's when I discovered anthropology, by the way, quite by chance, I was... I was working on some questions that Marcuse presented about memory and how is the past possibly redeemed? Is that conceivable? And I was just very intrigued by that. So I was just poking around in the libraries and I ran into uh, various anthropological and I hadn't even had no interest in that field. And it was such an eye opener. Wow. I just very radical implications. Our, our original state, if you will, our, and then finding out the, all the capacities that we seem to have had well before uh, modern uh, Homo sapiens, Homo erectus. So that was uh, maybe a, maybe a part of that same question. Yeah, yeah. Pre-symbolic. Could you then, in, in in maybe relating this here, you're in the book and in other books you've written and in other essays you've written, you really take this critique of symbolic thought to places that I think a lot of people would find 
surprising. You know, you critique time, you critique number, you critique uh, art, you critique music. You you have a critique here that isn't music critique or art critique or things like this. Um, Maybe you could go a little deeper into that for listeners who aren't familiar with your other work. Uh, Yeah, it's... uh... Well, again, going back to the 80s, I had a lot of time, uh, again, in the absence of social movements, uh, for one thing. Uh, Yeah, those essays, each of which took about a year, that turned out to be like a series of five origins type stuff. And, of course, origins, that's uh, anathema to Uh, (laughs) postmodernism, that very uh, kind of pursuit. But uh, I found it very fascinating this whole thing about time, and I've, re- I've returned to that uh, more than once, so fascinating. And, and no one, you know, the famous quote from Augustine, I know I know what time is, unless somebody asks me, tell me what it is. And then I have, I'm lost, you know. So it's just the great puzzle. And, you know, how does that emerge? An anthropological question. Uh, is it true that we really had no time consciousness at some point and then it starts to creep in and now it stands over us as an alien power we're totally colonized by time more and more so uh so it's a fascinating thing i mean is that not a part of domination alienation you know certainly it is it seems to me it's and the same with number we didn't need number what what society requires number the concept of number counting what what it's already telling you that the nature of society that's uh turns to the quantitative and uh away from the more direct uh kind of a world that, that doesn't uh, d- doesn't depend on that so yeah it's and the case against art probably a, a very provocative title that it it, in fact, is maybe the most notorious <laughs> one of mine. I've gotten some mileage out of that one. It's not really the case against art. It's more exploring the trajectory, the emergence of art, again, the emergence of symbolic culture. And um, I, I take great pleasure in art, you know, in, in a lot of art, like most people. Music less so. I mean, I'm, that's not I, – I don't think I've really written about music, and I think that predates – representation, you know, unlike uh, what we think of as art, mostly, you know, uh, drawings. But anyway, all of that was, uh, I didn't have any money, but I did have the time to spend almost every day in the library. So. uh, Yeah. And you make good use of, of poetry in this book as well. You really, uh, I, w- I was very surprised and interested in how how broad your references are to uh, not only to literature, of course, you're a very well-read person, but uh, your use of poetry in this book was fascinating. Yeah, that's kind of a late-inning thing that I finally uh, made some discovery there, too. <laughs> I guess it's never too late. Maybe we've, we've talked a little bit about time now. Maybe you could talk about your theory of history as well. You take a very strong stand on, on what history is. Could you talk about that a little bit? 
Well, to me, technology is so central to that question. Division of labor, the, the most basic social institution, really. Uh, and, you know, it's it's still the case. Any economist, as I understand, will tell you that's what drives the world system. It's still division of labor. And uh, originally, that's what introduces differentials of power in society. Maybe the shaman was the first sort of full-time uh, specialist as a figure of authority. And, uh, you know, these, these uh, social divisions begin to emerge. And it seems like it's always tied to the technology, the question of whatever technology you mean. And does it become the exclusive, uh, uh, really, the role of, of specialists? And then they establish uh, that monopoly. And now, I mean, obviously, we're completely at the mercy of that expertise. You call in an expert for anything, you know, for, for everything. You know, that's what mass society means in a lot of ways. So I think that's always the question. It's it's moving from tools to technology uh, and all, all the way along the line. Mass production means mass society. It's it's as, It's as obvious as that, really. But if you, if people on the left or the right, just take that as a given, mass society, well, uh, I mean, there's a lot to undo. <laughs> if you have a problem with mass society and all the rest of it, then, you know, the obstacles are pretty clear. You know, I, I was thinking the other day of uh, the Baudrillard book, one of his early ones, the best one, I, I would think, um, in some ways, The Mirror of Production. And he points out it's productionism. You know, the 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 Marxists just mirror uh, the bourgeoisie. I mean, they they both worship production, mass production. So where do you get the break? With there's no radical break because you know they accept these givens. Or for example, that open letter that Engels wrote uh, to the anarchists. You folks talk about freedom all the time. When you step into the door of the factory, where's the freedom? Well, exactly. But they didn't have any answer because they also subscribed to the factory, like Marx. So you get no uh, you get no help there, really, on a fundamental level. Very few anarchists at the time. William Morris, for example, was his uh, uh, News from Nowhere, one of my favorite books, uh, took that up. What if industrialism is the problem? Then you get rid of it. You, you see a world that isn't based on that. Now we wonder if it's, it's quite possibly too late, but uh, it's still the same challenge, I think. And on page 103, you have this sentence that I picked out uh, because the sentence is... is both magical and really, I think, a key to this to this part on history, which is, if the past is somehow to be redeemed, that redemption will occur outside of history. Oh gosh, Adam, I, I wish I had looked that one up. <laughs> <laughs> to me, I, you know, I think of Walter Benjamin there. He sees on yeah, history his last uh, messianic kind of thing. I think it was his greatest uh, thing where. 
you've got to get out of history. Otherwise, you you know, when does history begin? I mean, versus prehistory. I mean, it brings in all that. But and that same thing I I referred to in passing uh, before, um, that question of Marcusa. Is it conceivable that there's a way to redeem the past? Well, it's along those same lines, I think. And I think that's, uh, I'm probably ripping off Benjamin there. You've got to break that. You've got to cut the ties. It's really the end of history. You can't keep going that way. There's got to be a break. And I think there's that brief thesis on history contribution is marvelous. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely referencing Benjamin in that section. So maybe now we can get to that. What does it mean to break with history? Oh, wow. what a tall order. Uh, well, if you see the the whole uh, depth of it uh, and the origins of it, I think you you begin to see what's required. I mean... Jacques Ellul is pretty big influence on me, and by the way, on on uh, Kaczynski, his industrial society and its future is sort of American vernacular version of the technological society that Ellul wrote in the forties and fifties. He told me that, and I think it's true. It's a great contribution because the Ellul is so abstract, but um, you know, it's it's just such a mammoth order. But, you know, if we start thinking along those lines as something not only to aspire to, but something that's required by the uh, enormity of the crisis, well, then you start moving away from the givens and all of these now manifestly ridiculous reform gestures that, you know, that anyone can see through, you know, with ease. It's just not getting it done in any way. It's not confronting the reality. It's It's got to be something far more basic. You know, and I, I came up with this snappy little line at some point. If if uh, the future is going to have to be somewhat somehow primitive or there won't be a future. I mean, I think I was tri- playing on that future primitive uh, thing that, that I discovered was a French title originally. A friend of mine told me about that, so I promptly stole it for <laughs> the name of one early book of mine. But uh, that's, uh, so what does that mean, primitive? It means undoing technology, literally, actually, not just in your head, like uh, uh, Heidegger pointed out. It doesn't really get you anywhere. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. You know, the the people in the streets in Genoa July uh, 2001, 300,000 people and the computers were flying out the windows and the banks were on fire and it was a, the battle was raging. Uh, that's, <laughs> there you go. But, you, but your critique of technology also goes deeper than just computers and finance uh technology but your critique of technology goes to the to the core of technology well i i would like to think so and i think uh heidegger as well you know that the world now treats everything as standing reserve it's just fodder 
you just obey the machine. Everything uh, becomes different because it's just more technology. It devours everything. It it changes everything. The river is not the same river with a hydroelectric dam on it. You know, it's a different Rhine. It's a different world. Everything it touches. And then he, I think, copped out on that. Well, I don't mean really that you have to get rid of it. <laughs> well, otherwise it's a joke. You do have to get rid of it, period. I mean, I don't see... I mean, there's primitivist lights that some people... Um, it's just a change in thinking. Well, yeah, good luck with that. Uh, there's no outside of it anymore. You, you can't get away with that if you ever could. Um, so I'm sorry. I'm drifting away from your question. I'm sorry. No, no. It's this is a this is an open interview. So the more you drift, the more you touch on topics that also are in the book, and so it's great. Oh, thank you. You know, uh, maybe we can return also, you you brought up Noam Chomsky, and of course, I feel like in many of your interviews, you end up having to uh, talk about Noam Chomsky, but Chomsky has famously said that, in his opinion, uh, technology is sort of neutral in human development, which is, of course, exactly the opposite of your opinion. You say you see technology as having an inherent quality that influences human life. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your difference with Chomsky then. Well, he accepts modern life. He accepts uh, really all of it. I mean, it's, he's called us not only genocidal in terms of if there was a primitivist turn, but genocidists. He's actually said this. I don't know if he still thinks this. Uh, but in other words, we are consciously wanting the extermination of billions of people. I mean, what madness. I mean, he, he pretends to think that what we're advocating is just uh, wanting to just push the button and, and erase all of humanity or something. Nobody I know thinks that way. You know, it would be some kind of a process, some kind of a, uh, a transition. It wouldn't be just overnight because, of course, people would die in, the, in fabulous numbers that, that would be obvious. We're not we're not ready for that, but we've got to move toward that. And he's so hostile to that direction that he has to resort to calling us genocidists. I mean, just vicious stuff. He's he's made a bunch of personal slurs, mentioning me, somewhat like uh, the late uh, Graeber. And you know, he, he's it's just weak reformism. It's just progressivism. He's always urging people to vote. I mean, on the most basic level, he's no anarchist. I mean, that's not the most interesting distinction, I guess. But, you know, I can see why he's so hostile. He's wedded, you know, in terms of, let's say, for example, indigenous people. Uh, He's never been on the side of them. He's a modernist. He wants more factories, more development. He was for the Sandinistas back in the 80s when they were trying to exterminate uh, banned society there in, in uh, the eastern part of Nicaragua. He had no trouble with that. Yeah, you got to pave everything. and I mean, that's just horrendous. I don't know if in recent years, maybe his rhetoric has been tempered slightly as he maybe understands how, how insane that point of view is. But uh, 
I don't think fundamentally has changed any more than Graeber did. It's sad. You know, I wasn't initially hostile to him, personally hostile. You know, young anarchists have approached him. And anyway, I, I won't get in with personal stuff, but he's he's really uh, been quite opposed to it, shall we say, <laughs> to put it mildly. So, Could you... Know, you... Could you maybe define technology? Well, I think it's, you know, when you have the transition from tools to technology, you got to have tools. And it, that has to do with division of labor. If you have flexibility, if you have autonomy uh, with a tool, which doesn't have much of any division of labor, uh, then as you're moving away from that to systems, technology, I think, is a system, basically. And then you have hierarchy and coordination and the beginnings of uh, of, uh, of more or less bureaucratic uh, development. And you see that in the how fast domestication renders all these things... Um, what we have today, you know, earliest civilizations, the Bronze Age, remarkably the same as right now. I mean, uh, that piece I wrote, uh, Origins of the 1%, I was, I was, I was fascinating to find out how, uh, how much uh, it's, it's it, you know, that was before the Iron Age. You know, the Bronze Age and then the Iron Age took over at about 1000 BC. I mean, this is quite a long time ago. And yet the features of it were very remarkably parallel to, you know, everyday modern class society with showrooms and consumerism and just just a million things that are, we think of just as our purview as, as, as modern contemporary people. No, it started quite a while ago and uh, it's only been, refined or extended, deepened, the technology, now there's really no outside of it. And this metaverse thing, wow, a a qualitatively bad leap forward to when the digital and the virtual join up and there won't be anything outside the screen, really. I mean, it's just fabulous. I I don't think it's going to fly either. I don't think we're that estranged yet. Maybe it'll, you know, they keep trying. And all the parts of it have, uh, in a lot of ways, already been there for a little while. What would make up this uh, metaverse? Like haptic technology. Haptic technology. Touch. Human touch. You can you can engineer that. The feeling of feeling. I mean, how hideous is that? How estranged? That's already on offer. It's not, you know, widely employed, thank God. But uh, this cyber sex, I mean, a million things. It's its really all this ugly alienation is the parts are there. And Facebook, you know, turns into meta, which they're desperately trying to roll out the metaverse. I don't think it'll catch on. I don't think people are that far gone that uh, direct experience itself will really be erased. Think of that. I mean, um, it's really pretty staggering. And people, 
you know, it's, it's somewhat mysterious, sort of like algorithms, for example. Nobody knows exactly what that is <laughs> or, or the metaverse. How will that work? What will it really mean in everyday life, you know? But uh, it's clear what they're shooting for, you know. It's scarier all the time. They're going, they're going for broke. They're going for everything. The, just a completely totalizing domination and no outside of it. With, with regards, maybe now we can turn back to this point on history, because, of course, you referred to the origins of the 1%, and you referred to the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. And a lot of people uh, still in anthropology and, of course, in philosophy uh, turn to Marx when they're looking at historical change, right? And they maybe turn to historical materialism, or maybe they turn to Weber, Max Weber's work and the idea that that uh, ideas change history. Do you have a position either for or against Marx or Weber on the idea of historical change? Well, I guess I've paid more attention to Marx, and uh, well, he had a very acute understanding of how capitalism works, but you know some colossal mistakes. I mean. Getting back to domestication, he thought, well, if we herd everybody into the factories, then there'll be this mighty united proletarian force. Well, obviously, it was just a step in worsening domestication, deepening domestication. It meant there would be less resistance. Um, The handloom weavers and, you know, people in England, some of whom held out to the point of starving to death rather than be in the factories. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Karl Marx. That was a horrible uh, misreading of, of the human spirit, I think. And, uh, what, and you know, originally, and by the way, Adorno pointed this out in, a, in a, um, his big book, uh, gosh, I'm, so anyway, the point is, uh, early on, Marx said, well, what we want to see is this flexibility of roles. You've fished in the morning and maybe do some other activity in the afternoon. And so you don't get caught up in the web of specialization and just be defined by one role. And then later, and that would be freedom. Otherwise, it isn't freedom. Well, later... <laughs> he dumped that, right? No, you got to have a factory system. That's a total end to this uh, brief sort of fantasizing about uh, a non-division of labor. Uh, yeah, and he pointed that out. What, gee, what happened to that? That's a very giant shift there. Well, yeah, freedom is defined as, in effect, mass production. Wow. So that was just a colossal failure on his part, that shift. And, you know, early on, he also talked about primitive communism, hunter-gatherer life, and, and the same, really the same move. He, he moved away from that. Well, that may have been nice, you know, and, but progressively that's just missing altogether from any relevance for him.
you know, rather than be inspired by the the worth of that and how very very long it uh, lasted. You know, you got to think if something was working and was egalitarian and didn't destroy the planet and so forth, maybe <laughs> maybe that's because it was a good thing. It did work for you know hundreds of thousands of years. So anyway, I think it's easier these days to to kind of look at these things anew and realize that uh, that all these givens are just a death spiral. Basically, they just have to be um, broken up or cut off, like uh, Benjamin said. You just have to make the break. The situation has talked about making the break, but but they had no they had no grasp of technology. You know, as much as I got from the situationists, and I was I was quite inspired in a lot of ways. But you know, they had this like one thing: we can have cities on wheels that'll roll down to the seaside. And oh, wait a second, what does it take to have anything on rails in the first place? You know. You know, it's just kind of easy to see the the silliness, to put it mildly, of the technology. Or, the, for example, now with SpaceX, you know, going to Mars and everything. Uh, in fact, I'm going to have this debate, it seems like, with a Musk uh, person, a SpaceX individual who's agreed to it. But anyway, I've referred to the the famous eco poster the view of the earth from orbiting the moon and it's vulnerable it's blue you know and oh we've got to save it and blah 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 well what does it take to take that photograph think about that for a minute it's the massive industrial thing that is among other things the space the space project how do you get that who pays for that you know which forms of life pay for that maybe all of them you know, I mean, it's just a fantasy to take such a superficial look at it. You know, very nice, very, you know, you could say it's inspired people, Earth Day, blah, blah, blah. But uh, what does it build on? You know, it's it's really easy. It doesn't come down from the skies. It doesn't happen by magic without any consequences. It's the progressive ruin of the natural world, you know, pretty clearly. There's also a part in the book where you discuss fire and fire's relationship to domestication. Well, yeah, some people have said, why not pick fire, uh, not uh, what we think of as domestication of plants and animals? Why not fire? Well, as, as you know, <laughs> from that piece, if not other things... You can't domesticate fire. You don't change its nature. Domestication means changing the nature of, of say, an animal. You know, if you break a horse to do work and so forth, or an elephant or whatever. But uh, fire is still good old fire. It's <laughs> You're not changing its nature, if that's what you mean by domestication. And that's the general definition of it. You know, that's, that's what it's all about. And... Uh, you know, civilization and its discontents by Freud, so valuable, so radical a text, you know, 
that's the engine of unhappiness. That's the motor of neurosis right there. We don't take to domestication that well. You know, he nails it. It's a wound that doesn't heal. We don't get over it until we, well, the obvious implication, don't get over it until there's no more domestication, until there's rewilding or whatever you want to call it, de-domestication. Yeah, he, he really lays it out. Of course, he's not, he's not willing to, you know, go the whole route with that. Well, that doesn't mean you get rid of it. You can't get rid of it. Well, why not? Why not? If there's to be a chance for life. Anyway, that's that's a very wonderful text, in my opinion. And that's not the that's the main thrust of it, in my opinion. There's other stuff in there that's this death drive stuff. Not even Freudians uh, swallow that anymore. But the main idea of it is very important. Well, speaking of wonderful texts, I can say that this book is uh, wildly entertaining, uh, despite some of the depressive uh, topics we've touched on and some of the depressive topics it touches on. Nevertheless, you it's, it's kind of short chapters that touch on everything from rituals to the San Francisco leftist scene in the 70s to... Uh, the things we've talked about today, fire and Adorno and symbolic thought and history and anti-history and philosophy and anti-philosophy. It's a very, very fun book. Uh, I think I read it in one sitting. I have one question for you, which is kind of a tradition here on the New Books Network to end off the show, which is what are you working on now? Well, I actually don't have a writing project at the moment. Uh, I guess I'm sort of taking a break from it. And and as a matter of fact, right now, really enjoying more uh, communication with people. You, for example, that's for darn sure. <laughs> and I think in two days, I'm going to have a connection with some primitivists in Turkey that are uh, out to renew uh, primitivist groups or the primitivist movement there. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. You know, really so much has waned since the early 2000s. You know, it's a lot of things have kind of petered out. But um, so it's nice to, I want to find out what they're thinking and uh, how they're going about things. And they contacted me just this week and uh, going to be real happy to be in touch with them. There've been more, I've, there've been more chances to talk with people, for me, and I'm just real encouraged by that. So, but I'm sure I'll find another topic. I'm, you know, as you may know, you've probably noticed this. I've never actually written a book. Uh, a People's History of Civilization is the closest thing to a narrative, but they're basically just putting things in the, in order, you know, in chronological order, and it turned out to be a book. I only had to fill in one or two things, but but the others are just collections of, as you say, essays. Some of which are pretty short and topics to explore and learn about, and then they they pile up to <laughs> to a certain poundage or or whatever it is, and then it's a book. Very uh, so the- fortunate to have a 
publisher like Feral House, they're, they've been very good to, uh, they've been very honest and, uh, the late Adam Parfrey and, and now his partner has been, Jessica has been running things and it's been, it's been very good. So the thing I can say is that when you do get a writing project back off the ground, I'd love to have you back on the show. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I appreciate the that. Book, the, the book is When We Are Human, published with Feral House in 2021. Mr. John Zuzan, thank you so much for your time today. It was an honor. Thank you. <laughs>